You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Well, brothers and sisters, would you open up your Bible together with me to Psalm 133. You know, I've got a renewed excitement for everything that's happening in our church, and as I serve as the pastor of the church, when I think about uh, how we will soon be changing our church name to Hope Bible Church Markham, starting in October, and uh, we're going to be going through this book of Ruth when we start October, and I'm excited about the new initiatives that we have in our church, like uh, the prayer nights that are going to be happening on a monthly base- basis on Sunday evenings. I want to think about the small group initiatives that are happening in our mixed small groups with uh, these open house nights where groups are going to open the doors to the community to invite people in to experience Christian hospitality. And the serving activities where we're going to go out into the community and use our gifts for uh, the good of others. And knowing that we're doing these new initiatives, specifically the ones related to small groups, the open house and the serving activities, I thought it would be um, beneficial to our church to be able to lay a theological foundation and understand the basis for what it means to practice real fellowship together. Why do we do fellowship in the way that we do it? How do we do fellowship in the way that we do it? So over the next four weeks, we're going to consider what does it mean to be a community on purpose that practices real fellowship. Next week, we're going to consider the purpose of joy. The following week, we're going to consider the purpose of compassion. The last week, we're going to consider the purpose of growth. But this week, we're going to consider the purpose of unity. The next three messages messages are the how-to messages for real fellowship. This message isn't a how-to, it's a here's why. This is the sermon you need to hear if you'd rather watch the game or sleep in rather than participate in small group. This is the sermon you need to hear if you're fed up that your small group feels like a social club and isn't building into your holiness and sanctification. This is the sermon you need to hear if you don't think you need Christian community and you're fine following Jesus lone wolf style by yourself. This is the sermon you need to hear if you've been, been hurt in Christian community and you're really skeptical about some organized way of building Christian relationships. This is the sermon for the small group leader who feels like leading the group is a joyless chore and you know it and your group knows it. Today is the here's why we must practice real fellowship together and what we will experience when we do. Real fellowship is a great experience. And today, Psalm 133 is going to invite us to celebrate six great experiences that we can enjoy when we practice real fellowship together. So as we do, would you stand together with me to honor God as we read his word? And we're gonna read Psalm 133, verse one to verse three. This is God's word. It speaks to us today, and this is what it says. 
Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you command this blessing here in our midst? Would we enjoy abundant life forevermore here and now? As a result of this word heard, would we hear your voice? Like the young boy Samuel said, speak for your servant is listening. Find here servants, Lord God, who are ready and desiring to hear your voice. Speak to us and command this blessing that we would enjoy life forevermore as we walk in real fellowship and in unity together. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. Real fellowship is a great experience. And Psalm 133 invites us to celebrate six experiences that can be enjoyed through real Fellowship. So let's start off with this. What is real fellowship? What is the unity that exists within real fellowship? Look at verse 1. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I would say that real fellowship is bound in unity through Christ's love. I want to teach you something about this Psalm 133. It's not an isolated psalm within the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of 150 different poems. And when the compilers of the book of Psalms edited it together, they edited it into five sub-books. There are five sub-books within the larger book of Psalm. And the fifth book, which comprises Psalm 107 to one, Psalm 150, is where Psalm 133 lies in book five. But not only that, Psalm 133 is also connected together with 14 other songs, psalms, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. All are kind of like a one chapter of a long story. Look at the first line of Psalm 133. It's capitalized in my Bible. Maybe it is in yours. Do you see what those words say? A song of ascents. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 are 15 psalms called the Songs of Ascent because they were sung by pilgrims who gathered together from all across Israel together at Mount Zion in Jerusalem where God's temple dwelt. And to get there, they would have to ascend the mountain of Zion to get to the temple. Some scholars believe that when they got to that temple, the pilgrims, when they were going up to the temple, walking up the stairs to the temple, one step at a time would recite first Psalm 120. Then the next step would recite Psalm 121. And they would recite these 15 chapters, one after another sequentially, till they got to the top and they were there together worshiping God. So when the original people who first sung this psalm and heard this psalm read Psalm 133, they were reading it after 
leaving their homes with all of their sorrows and all of their pains where they might have been by themselves and coming together with brothers and sisters across the nation to worship God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Their unity was because they were citizens of Israel, people of the chosen, chosen by the holy God Yahweh who could come together in Jerusalem where his presence dwelt. And they could look around at the other pilgrims, knowing the unity they had, and call each other family. Families have unity by merit of biology, right? They share the biological DNA of their parents. They share the last name of their parents. But you can have the form of unity in a family, but not experience the true function of unity as a family, right? If you were going to look for pearls in the ocean, the form that the pearl is held in is a clam, right? But not every clam may necessarily have that pearl. To open it up and see that there's nothing there, it's kind of deceiving. It looks like it should have this functional experience, but it only has an empty form. And in the same way, your biological family and the spiritual family of faith can have the form of unity, but lack the function of experiencing true unity. How can we? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 to 6 tells us what the function of unity is and the form that enables it. Let's look at this passage together on the screen. Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 6, it says this. I therefore, Paul's writing, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's the function of our unity. Here's how we experience it. With all humility and gentleness, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And here is the form that enables that function. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your one call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The form that allows Christian unity to persist is the fact that we have one Father and we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, who called us all together. And we are filled with one spirit who binds us together in unity. But you can have that common identity in Christ and not experience true unity if you don't love each other. If you're not humble. If you're not gentle. Real fellowship is bound in unity through Christ's love. And we must love each other as just as Jesus loved us. We learned about this idea of what it means to just love others just as Christ loved us in the weekly devotional that was sent out by email this past Thursday. Loving just as Christ loves us means loving just as Jesus assumed the humiliating place of a slave and did the dirty work of washing each other, his disciples' feet. Just as Christ loved them in that way, so I must be willing to love my brothers and sisters by doing the job that no one else wants to do to serve them. Just as Jesus willingly laid down his life for his friends, 
So we must be willing to lay down our lives and sacrifice and give up our rights for the good of others. Are you loving like this? You might have the form, but are you participating in the function? We will not be able to experience these great experiences that we can have in fellowship if love isn't there. Are you actively, intentionally going out of your way to show this type of love? And I want to show you what it looks like when we do. There are six great experiences that Psalm 133 invites us to celebrate. And I want to explain them to you in three couplets. And here's the first one. When we love one another, we will experience a fellowship that is good and pleasant. Look at the text again with me. Verse one, it says this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Good and pleasant are not, are not necessarily like attractive words, right? It's not necessarily something that a graphic designer is going to put on a, a fire sale to be able to get people to buy up all of the door crashers, right? Good is probably the thing that your kids said when they came home last Tuesday and you asked them how their day at school was. Oh, it was good. Good generally just means not bad. It's not really an attractive word, but what it means in this context is it's describing something that is morally pure and positively beneficial for my livelihood. See, we really rely on things that are maybe not glamorous, but are at least good. Life would be bad without good things. For instance, I'm not super fond of doing laundry, but it would be bad for my personal hygiene to sit, wear the same underwear I wore last week and not wash it. It's good to do that, even though it's not necessarily glamorous. It's bad for your health to be able to eat freshly prepared food on a plate with weak, old, moldy food. And it's not necessarily glamorous or fun to wash the dishes, but it's good for your health to wash the dishes. In the same way, fellowship isn't necessarily first a glamorous and glitzy thing. It's a discipline. And this discipline is beneficial for your soul in a way that the glitzy and glamorous things are not beneficial for your soul. Because frankly, you've probably felt like I, what I felt before. Sometimes it feels like the discipline of practicing fellowship is, is tiring and burdensome compared to other things I could do with my time. And I just rather have me time. You know, the discipline of real fellowship might not seem as glamorous as going down to a chicken sandwich shore downtown to get the newest, hottest fast food or going downtown to line up and see the Hollywood stars on the red carpet at TIFF or getting together with my buddies and watching uh, opening night games of the NFL season. It might not seem as relaxing, as comfortable as snuggling into bed and watching a few too many episodes of my favorite Netflix show. 
might not seem as comfortable and, and relaxing as just coming home, ordering skip the dishes, having a shower, and going to bed early. There are other things to do with their time that are more attractive. None of those things are necessarily bad. None of those things will be beneficial and good to your soul like fellowship will be. Not only is it good, not only is it beneficial, but it's pleasant. It's beneficial to the soul and it's beautiful for, to the soul. This word pleasant, on the other hand, in the original language is a desirable word. This word pleasant in the Old Testament often refers to, to experiences of the senses that are just nice. For instance, in the Song of Solomon, pleasant is the word that describes the pleasurable experience of two lovers gazing at each other's beauty. Pleasant is the word in the Psalms that describes the pleasurable experience of listening to a skilled musician play their craft. Pleasant describes the uh, desirable taste of eating fresh honey and the sweetness that it is to our palate. And in the same way, real fellowship is pleasurable to the sense of the intangible soul that the physical senses could never satisfy and could never be so delightful. Is that the kind of experience that you have in your small group? What would you do to get it? What would you do to be able to lead a group like that? It might seem rare, but it doesn't need to be rare. It's available for any who walks in unity through our identity and who is willing to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. It is good. It is pleasant. And then the author uses some, let's be honest, strange illustrations to describe more of the experience of what it's like. Let's read verse two and verse three and we'll see some images that compare the quality of experiencing real fellowship. Verse two, it is like precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Is it okay to say that the image of oil running down a dude's head and onto his beard is kind of weird? What does that mean? How does it relate to small groups? Well, it had significant meaning to its ancient culture. And when we understand the meaning, we'll grasp its significance and see what it means to having relationships together in real fellowship. Notice the name of the person who has this oily beard. Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses. This oil upon his beard from the head onto the robes happened once to Aaron when he was in ceremony designated and set apart as the high priest of the nation of Israel. 
And every high priest that followed Aaron after he died, and then the next high priest that followed after the next one died, would be inaugurated as the new high priest in a ceremony where oil would be poured on the head and would drip down across the whole body. And the high priest's duty was reminiscent here when we're thinking about the precious oil that was poured on his head. The high priest was the only person who was able to enter into the temple at the place called the Holy of Holies. This is that place in the temple where only he could go behind a thick veil where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant was the place where God promised that his presence would manifest with his people. And it was the place once a year on the festival Yom Kippur where the high priest would bring in to the Holy of Holies the blood of a sacrificed animal and would sprinkle it on the top of the Ark of the Covenant on the place called the Mercy Seat. And when the blood was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, the sins of the whole nation would be atoned for and forgiven. So through this one man and his obedience to his duty, the grace of God from the presence of God was dispensed to the nation of Israel. Anyone see the silhouette of Jesus in this high priest? This is who Christ is. He is the great and final high priest as the book of Hebrews teaches us. And he atones and forgave our sin, offers forgiveness for our sin when he offered a sacrifice not through the blood of an animal but by shedding his own blood when he allowed wicked men to crucify him. And through his one act of obedience, the grace of God and the forgiveness of sin is dispensed to anyone who believes in him. Just as the oil of the high priest set him apart, sanctified him, that's what sanctification is, being set apart. As the oil of the high priest set him apart so that through him, the people of God would receive grace of God from the presence of God, so in real fellowship through Christ, our great final high priest, we are sanctified to be able to find the grace of God from the presence of God with the people of God. Does that make small groups sound a little bit more than coffee and muffins? Way more than that. It is a sanctifying thing by which we are ministered to with God's grace. But it's not only sanctifying, it's satisfying. Well, in what ways it's satisfying? How can we experience this satisfaction? Well, we learn this from the second illustration in verse 3. Look at the scriptures together with me. I hope you have your Bible still open. Verse 3, it says this. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Mount Hermon was in the most northern part of the nation of Israel. And Mount Zion was in the southern part of the nation of Israel. And when this psalm was sung at the end of the festival where the pilgrims, or at the festival that the pilgrims came to in Zion, people from all across the nation were gathering together. People from the north, people from the south coming together in Zion. 
Hermon, this northern mountain, um, was known for its height. It's a pretty big mountain. There's snow on its peaks for most of the year. You can go snowboarding there even today, most year long. Uh, it's also known for being a place where there are large accumulation of dew. And this is significant because uh, Israel's economy was what's called an agrarian economy. Their livelihood depended on agriculture, on growing crops and raising herds. And our economy is like financial and tech-based and farming is not as big in our economy as it was in ancient times when in Israel's age, it was like the thing that dominated their economy. And if you're gonna have a flourishing economy in an agrarian society, you really badly need your plants watered. You really depend on the rain coming. But what if the rain doesn't come? Well, the dew can nourish the crops. So in Israel's day, dew became symbolic of not only being the life-giving vitality for their crops so that they could physically live, but it became salt symbolic also of the life-giving vitality of God that nourished their souls so that they could have spiritual life and bear fruit. Not only did the dew have this connotation, but also when the writer was writing this, he probably was thinking about how in this festival, people from the north in Mount Hermon came together with the south at Mount Zion. And when they came together, that's when the whole nation was able to experience the life-giving vitality of the dew from the north. We wouldn't all be able to experience this life-giving vitality together if we stayed alone. We could only experience it when the people from the north and the people of south, the south come together in unity. And then our souls will be satisfied because God will nourish our being. Verse, end of verse three says this, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. See, this is the satisfying result of what happens when we get together in small group. The intangible part of our being that we call the soul is nourished in a way that nothing else really can. Small group might feel like a chore. It is a discipline. And sometimes I felt before that I just, it'd be easier to skip out. I'm tired enough as it is. I have to add another thing to my plate. You might feel like you're just exhausted and burnt out and empty in your soul, but I'm praying that even in the midst of these dry feelings, that it would not be an excuse not to go to small group, but the reason that I must go to small group because my soul needs refreshing. It needs the life-giving vitality from God. It needs the grace that God dispenses in Christ. So I'm praying that every week when you go to small group, first that you would, and that when you leave, you would know that there was a reason that you went and that your soul would be ministered by the grace of God and be satisfied and nourished by the life of the Spirit that you'd want to go back again because you would want another measure of it and that you would want even more people to have it too. These are actually the last 
fifth and sixth experiences of real fellowship. Not only is it good and pleasant, not only is it sanctifying and satisfying, but also Psalm 133 says that the experience of real fellowship is measureless and limitless. How often or how much will the grace from God and the nourishment for my soul last? Will it just last throughout the week? Will it just last to midterms? Will it just last to the kids are out of diapers? Will it only be enough for me? It's measureless in as much as it will always fill fill the bottom of your soul to the top of your soul so that it overflows and it's limitless in that it will always be ready to extend out to more and to more people. We see this in verse one when the writer says, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Notice that there isn't a question mark at the end of the sentence, an exclamation mark. So why is he using the word how? Isn't how like begging a question, asking you to quantify an answer, right? The writer isn't wondering, oh, tell me a number of how, the amount of how fellowship is good and pleasant. It's like, mm, this week, B plus. Uh, this week, even par. No, he's, by saying how great, he's saying that you can't measure its greatness in the same way that we sing, how great is our God. In the same way that we sing, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. In the same way that we sing, oh, the love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. There's no end to the amount in which our souls will be nourished and ministered to with grace in a pleasant and good way. There's always more available. We have the blessing of life forevermore. In Christ, the promise of life eternal in the kingdom and the abundance of life now in the spirit. It's measureless, but it's also limitless. See, the unity that we have should never be closed off from others. Real fellowship will always fight back against all temptation to be a closed off click for a privileged few that feels like if I open this up to anyone else, I'm gonna lose what I have. No, this passage says that it is always willing to flow out to more. Look, look at verse two. It says, it is like the precious oil on the head. Does it start on the head and end on the head? No, it runs down, running down on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon. Does it stay in Hermon? No, it falls out to the mountains of Zion. In the same way, it's so rich, it's so pure, it's so satisfying, so sanctifying that it fills your own soul top to bottom and overflowing and it reaches out to other people as well. When you have real unity and you experience these great blessings, it is always ready to extend out to more and more who also call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, in your group, maybe you feel like you've lost it. 
And you, maybe you've never been a part of a group because you never think that this is actually attainable. Or you're skeptical of it all in general. Or in your group, you've just never found it at all. Allow me just to ask you this simple direct question. Are you enjoying this kind of fellowship? Are you? Are you the skeptical person who's hurt by a Christian community? Are you the lone wolf person who thinks they don't need it? Are you the burnt out leader who feels like you can't lead this way and you know your group knows it? Real fellowship is a great experience, but it's not enjoyed passively. It takes active and intentional discipline. And together with the necessity of love, it also takes grace. Because all the people who gather together are sinners who gather together. And sinners like me, sinners like you, we're selfish people. And we can look for our own needs first. But when we are disciplined to practice real fellowship, functioning fellowship, in love and humility and gentleness, when we are a community on fellowship that has a community on purpose that practices real fellowship with true unity that loves one another, that's when these things will be realized in our groups. That's when we will see its measurelessness and its limitlessness. That's when we'll experience its sanctifying grace and satisfying power. That's when we'll see its beneficial goodness and its beautiful pleasantness. Are you willing to put in the effort to find it? Are you doing all that you can to enjoy it? I'm praying that in the group that I lead in men's ministry and the group that you participate in, whether it's youth ministry and you're in grade six, whether it's young adults or men's or women's or mixed groups, that this will be the experience that we all can have. Real fellowship is a great experience. Are you doing all that you can to enjoy it so that God would bless us with the blessing that he commands? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that we have this form of unity because of your mercy and grace. One faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Father who is over all and in all and through all. This form of unity as a family, God, I get it. We only have because you've united us together. Apart from your grace and mercy, we would be abandoned and orphaned we would be on our own. Our souls would be wandering in a desert of loneliness. And you yourself, Lord, have told us that it is not good for man to be alone. Thank you, Lord God, that we can have this unity in real fellowship, bond together in Christ's love that is good and pleasant, satisfying and sanctifying, measureless and limitless, would you shower us with this experience in our church? And would you keep us from anything 
that would prohibit true Christ-like love in our groups. Oh Lord, nourish our souls in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.